Hello, my name is Jack Elliot Hobbs, and welcome to Unlived Lives, a philosophical YouTube series and podcast in which we explore the lives my guests are not living and why. If you hear any unmotivated sound, it's likely to be my two dogs enjoying life entirely in the present, unaware of any disruption they may be causing. I hope you enjoy listening. in this episode has won awards for designing and video directing shows for musical artists touring arenas and stadiums. Depeche Mode, Robbie Williams, Spice Girls, Elbow and Queen to name but a few. He was born on an RAF base in Cambridgeshire, UK and moved to the seaside with his mother and brother at only 18 months old. Picking up the bass guitar at 10, he worked on his first live music performance show, Alien Sex Fiend, at the Humberside Theatre. Having been introduced to photography as a valid form of art at 14, he studied graphic design at college and went on to get a BA honours in photojournalism at the university in Hull. Whilst playing in dozens of bands in the East Coast area, he worked as a photographer and writer for a national chain of musician magazines before studying HND electronic engineering at college. He worked in concert touring before discovering video in 1996. Moving to London to pursue video technology the following year and has been video directing ever since. During lockdown, he has been performing his own concerts online, making promo videos, taking daily infrared photographs, and has a goal of becoming more handsome. My good friend, John Shrimpton, <laughs> welcome to Unlived Lives. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely wonderful to have you. Tell me about your infrared photographs. Well, it's, um, uh, I've always been, so I've been had an obsession with photography and uh, since, let's say, when my wonderful uh, art teacher, Warwick Mann, who introduced me to the fact that while I had lots of good ideas with pictures and stuff, I was I couldn't convey things through drawing. I was just really annoyed that I, can, I still am annoyed that my drawing is terrible. And he sort of introduced me this this thing of photography and you go compose things and get things looking pretty and, and you can print them and put them on walls. Oh, cool. So the, the thing that was getting in the way of expressing, it was... Um, what uh, ended up being, you know, quite a handy thing as it turned out in the long run. But uh, so the infrared thing, when I was kind of looking for new ideas for shows and stuff, yeah. I'm always trying to find, keep looking at different technologies and just giving them a try. And I've tried lots of different things. I've uh, bought um, thermal cameras and valve cameras and all sorts of various valve things. Valve cameras. Wow. Oh, they're wonderful. They're yeah. at the... Um, 
you know, the very old school, I've got about three of these Sony 3200s and they are the size of a shoebox. And the picture of them is so terrible, but it's pretty beautiful. <laughs> so I bought them with an idea of, you know, I've, I've got lots of night vision cameras that I use for work type stuff. And um, I, used, I used infrared cameras on the Cigarros tour years ago. Oh, which was wow. Wonderful. It, gave, it made everything look really spooky. Um, but the infrared landscape photography, I bought this camera about three or four years ago and just thought, hmm, be a thing. Might yeah. be interesting, might be awful. And um, while the lockdown's been on, I've been going on daily sort of like six or seven mile walks just around the countryside. Because fortunately, we're blessed with beautiful countryside around mm. here. And I thought, well, why don't we take this thing out and see what it looks like? And it's become like a daily, a daily art project to keep my, uh, keep the blades sharp, as it were. And nice. um, it's just turned into quite a, a pretty set of pictures. It makes, obviously gives a, a whole different dimension to this, the everyday world. Mm. And, you know, it just uh, gives me a, a little bit of pleasure and some people seem to like it, which is, you know, all, all one can hope for. Oh, from yeah, exactly, creative. from art. Indeed. Yes. Uh, thinking about your uh, becoming more handsome, as you, as you put <laughs> in your form, <laughs> when you look in the mirror, <clears throat> what's the first thing you check? Uh... Uh, my eyes to make sure they're still there because that's the most Im that's uh, as a person that does visual stuff for a living that's the thing I'm always the most worried about damaging mm. I'm forever damaging my hands and doing stupid things and damaging every other part of me and over the years of uh, of touring and stuff yeah check my eyes make sure that my uh, yeah that's basically it is make sure that if I'm going outside somewhere that um, everything needs everything that needs to be covered up is covered up <laughs> Right. Okay. So I, I don't think I've a. I'm not a, a fashionist or a, an Instagram influencer by any means. <laughs> That's really, so like your focus and your. Do you wear glasses? No, or? I don't. No. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I wish there was a better answer. I'll, I'll probably think of a really good answer for that on the way home. But. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> What's the best evening you've ever had? Oh heavens. Um. I think it would probably be. Uh, oh, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of, I've had lots. Of, I've been a very fortunate chap in that I've had lots of very pleasant times with lots of very pleasant people. Um, I think one a, fa a particular favourite was it was on my birthday about ten twelve years ago, and <laughs> and yes, that's the that's the alarm that's it, for you. Yeah. And um, I sort of uh, I was in. Brilliantly with my family when I woke up, which was wonderful. And I had a gig playing in St. Albans, uh, a pub called the, I think it was the O'Neill's. It had a, it's got a really big, lovely stage. And uh, the people in there are generally, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there is, for those listening, right behind the door behind me, there is, there are chickens. And there is a cockerel, <laughs> yeah. and that's what—that's what that is. So winning—is is that the time? That's we? the time. Yeah, you're, you're twenty minutes early. Come on, get it together. <laughs> oh, no, nah, hang on a second. <laughs> Let's see what we can do about this. <laughs> do you mind? <laughs> you have to do that right outside the door. Come on, away with you. <laughs> 
Right, let's, so, let's, let's try that again. Uh, best, What's best, the best uh, evening you've ever had? Oh, heavens. I've got lots of, uh, lots of possible options and some quite show-busy options, which have, have been very show-busy. Hmm. Um, but I think one of my favourite ones is on my birthday. Um, woke up, I was just up with my, yeah, my folks up in Bridlington, and I drove down here and I had a, was playing a gig in, uh, in St Albans. This pub called, I think, it was, I can't remember which pub it was, but it was a big, wide stage, and the people there were always up for being entertained and appreciative. And all my friends came down, so I was playing music, playing bass, which I love playing bass, um, with people that I loved doing music, which you know is all right and mm. it entertains the audience. And all me nearest and dearest around, I think that's probably it. I was doing as well. Um, very lucky to be doing a job that I love. I'll use the present tense, despite the, uh, the lockdown, meaning the entertainment industry has been yeah, closed sure. for a year. Yeah. I use the present tense for that. But uh, you know, I, lo- I love directing and stuff, but I absolutely adore playing music. It's the, it brings me the most joy in performing. Weirdly, for somebody that's quite shy, um, I am very, I love performing. I'm quite gregarious, quite, gregarious on stage and to the point of being annoying probably um but i think no. i think yes yes i mean the things i've done over the years have just and the things i've said over the microphone i've got oh my god how on earth could you do that <laughs> jesus but um yeah i think that that's probably it it's it's not as as show busy as you know being a u2 after show party in the on the sunset strip with anton corbin and lots of a-list movie stars because that was nice but the thing, you know, I was just hanging out and looking awkward with a, an overpriced glass of Coca-Cola, basically. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think that was probably it, just being surrounded by lovely people, playing music, and, yeah, just having loved ones around. I think mm. that's, that, that's probably where I was ha- the happiest uh, evening, I think. That's fascinating. Mm. All of the incredible experiences, one you've just described, you know, incredible experiences that people would think would be mm. sort of glamorous and incredible, but... Yeah, it's, you know, I've, <clears throat> I've been lucky to find out that having experienced glamour, I'll be kind of from the sidelines because I'm not really one for pushing myself forward. Um, that it's the, the the real experience sounds like a really patronising term for normal stuff, but it's you know the the showbiz stuff. It's nice, but you know having actual friends that are you know, sort of uh, with you for all the ins and outs and lefts and rights of life and doing something you enjoy. I mean, that's um, uh, quite easy to quite easy to please like that. <laughs> and, and going back, you said you're quite a shy person. Mm. What is it that makes you feel shy? Oh, heavens. There's a, a whole host of it. I mean, when I was a, when I was a kid, I was painfully shy. Um, uh and it's, so I think a lot of that is just down to wearing different masks, as it were. So again, it's a bit of a, a bit of a cliche, but um, yeah, when I was a when I was a lad, I was I was so shy and just wouldn't say boo to a goose and just worried about you know, all the ifs and ands and all the ridiculousness. And it's taken years and years of a uh, of kind of uh, cajoling by myself and others. To kind of go, it's okay. People aren't going to attack you all the time. It's probably going to be okay. 
Uh, oh, that's oh, that situation's okay. Oh, I don't know about this order. Oh, oh, it turns out it's okay, and that's fine. Oh, oh, okay. I mean, it's taken you know forty nine years to get to the level where um, I can converse in a more genuine way. No. Plus, you know, you're, you're always wearing the mask of uh, you know, when you when you're in the house on your own, you know, um, drinking tea, sitting in your pants. Uh, you kind of you are the actual person you actually are. When you go outside, you go right. Let's get this on. I'm prepared off for these situations. So when I'm going down to Tesco's, you wear you have kind of you have one persona. Or when you're going for a meeting with international rock stars and telling them you need to spend loads of money to make this happen, you wear a different kind of mask, which is a kind of it's you're sort of projecting a different kind of thing. It's like. Um, uh, Philippa Perry, the uh, psychotherapist, said, has made this analogy with the tapestries mm. that um, you know, what everybody else sees is the outside of the tapestry. She's all beautiful and paints pictures and you know, words and all these sorts of things. And on the back, it's an absolute mess of just stitches going everywhere. And, <laughs> and that's the part that you see. Mm. Um, which, and that was, a, that was a really lovely sentiment of the fact that, you know, in the same way that most people think that, I say most people think that I'm all right. That's maybe a little bit of a bold statement. I hope that most people think that I'm an all right person. Mm. But on, all, on the inside, you've got all the workings and where all the cross stitches go and all this kind of tangled mess and knots and all this sort of stuff. And you kind of think, oh God, I hope, I hope anybody thinks I'm all right and I'm not a, an idiot or whatever. <laughs> so it's just, it comes from that. And it's kind of realizing, you know, through all these years of testing testing yourself in different situations of going, well, I think I'm all right. I don't think I'm an arsehole. At least I hope not. Mm. I do my level best to try to not be an arsehole. But when I was when I was a kid, I didn't have those tests of... Um, my brother has is, is always been way cooler than me. He was the like the BMX star. He used to do BMX racing and, and display teams and play rugby and all these sorts of things. And he's always way cooler than me. He still is. Um, but he had the confidence for both of us because he was like, you know, bah, and he'd go out into the world and, you know, and he, uh, there's this massive presence. Hmm. Did he take Did he take you with him then? Not very often. His, his mates were way cooler than me. Right. But I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, but, you know, he's just, he'd go and hang out with his mates and they were about, again, three and a half years older than me, so they were eight, you know, four years above me in school. Um but uh, yeah, so I mean, I've always kind of admired his uh, his sort of confidence and his conviction, and I was always just the shy kid sitting in the background mm. wearing a bobble hat and looking awkward. <laughs> and in many ways, I still am, mm. but uh, I'm just better at uh, better at masking it these days. Right. <laughs> so how, how do you how do you feel that's progressed over your life? That ability or that your your thinking about that your awareness of it. Mm, well, I mean. The awareness, I mean, it took me, uh, I was, and I've always been fascinated with the mechanics of things. Like, um, I was forever getting into trouble with my mum for when I'd get a, a toy or something, I'd always take it apart and see how it was constructed. And nine out of ten times, I could put it back together again. And the, the one, the 10% of times is uh, to a few awkward conversations. Um, and basically, they usually get my brother to fix it. <laughs> Bless his cotton socks. Um, 
and it's the same thing with you know how the how the the mind works. And I remember when I was about sort of ten or twelve, going, "Why why am I so shy?" Because I seem to when I'm at school, and my my sort of whole policy was kind of making the bullies laugh so they would leave me alone, and so I kind of got this entertainer sort of class clown kind of a thing right. going on where I would entertain others so that I wouldn't get uh, I wouldn't get thumped um, and that's in many ways it's just uh, the shyness is still there I'm terrible at ringing people up and arranging things on a social level I don't like to be the one that instigates you know let's go and do this let's go and do this because I always think oh, they don't want to hear from me jeez um, so in many ways it's just the the uh, the shyness is still there, but the uh, the mask is getting better, and it's—I don't mean that in like a suffocating way, but it's just the way that you deal with your own neuroses and your own worries about failure. You go, well, it worked that time. It's worked the previous thousand times, so if I do it this time, it'll probably be all right. Mm. Which is maybe a little oversimplifying it, but do you do you feel that you have an opportunity to be, dare I say, genuine? with people or oh yeah I mean uh, my my whole sort of um, modus operandi is, be, is being genuine uh, I hate you know again I work in show business and there's lots of people that pretend to be somebody they're not and it's I always find I always feel really uncomfortable around people like that I mean there's, there's so many because that's what you have to do to be in you know a show business type situation you have to have the uh the bullshit factor for the want of a, mm. a more a more flowery word <laughs> um because that's what sells to people you know again sort of going to your international rock star with a, a massive high concept that's going to cost millions of pounds to make you've got to have a certain amount of oomph behind you and so far i've managed to i've managed to sort of by god knows how i've managed to get to you know, quite high up in very competitive thing by being myself and being being genuine. Mm. Obviously, having this, you know, wearing the mask of uniform. Uh, yeah, wearing the uniform. Yes, I mean, you wouldn't go to a you wouldn't go to a funeral uh, in a clown costume traditionally. Nor would you go to a children's birthday party in uh, um, BDSM wear, for want of a, Hopefully a, not. a slightly more safe for work um, reference. <laughs> God. Um, not that I have a clown's uniform or BDSM wearing the house, just to clarify for reasons of uh, social services. Very well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just where, you know, wearing the appropriate thing. So when, you know, when I go back up, up north to see the family, which I do very regularly, you know, I'm, uh, I'm usually tired from work. <laughs> it's usually a, whenever I go back up north to see the folks. I usually fall asleep for quite a lot of the time. and I'm probably not very good company, but um, yeah, I, can be my, I can be myself a lot more there. Whereas when you're at work and you've kind of got to be the, uh, the head of a department and stuff and answer lots of problems all the time, you kind of have to put this quite thick padded jacket on, mm. which can take all the, the knocks and the, the thumps that keeps coming at it. So it's just wearing a different a different uniform for a different time. So yeah, be, being indoors at home and this uh, this new hermit lifestyle this year has brought along, actually quite nice. Mm. It's kind of weird. I'm, I'm 
when things go back to normal, we go back to doing stadium shows. I'm quite anxious about it because I have to remember where I put the armor. Basically, where do, where, like where you put your scarf when it gets chilly. Mm. Like, oh God, right. How do we? How do we prepare to talk to? I'm used to talking to maybe one person a day, and that's usually a person that's walking the dog. Um, whereas when I go back to work, I've got to talk to hundreds of people and ask them to do things that are kind of hard work and they might not necessarily want to do. Mm. So that's going to be a yeah, challenge. It's going to be a challenge of kind of getting back to up to begin match fit again, really. Mm. Which is like you know, it's like any any athletes. It's, it's the same, but for the brain and how you uh, how you approach people and how you, you deal with folks. Mm. And talking about your armor mm. within that armor, are you are you good at taking criticism? I'm good at absorbing criticism. Um, I don't deal with it necessarily very well. I'm uh, I'm terrible at taking praise. I think as a, I think a lot of people that aren't terribly confident. Um, if somebody says, "God, that was really good," <laughs> and it mm. makes you feel uncomfortable and stuff. Or if somebody says, oh, that was really good, oh, apart from that one thing. And it's the one thing that's just like an absolute mm. dagger in the heart. Mm. Oh, God. And that's what... That's what sticks. That's what sticks. And that's how... We, <laughs> that's how 14 months into a lockdown, you're in the shower and you're going, oh, do you remember that show 20 years ago? And they said they didn't like that, the colour of that thing you did. Oh, you dick. Mm. And he's, oh, God. Yeah, so that's... I'm not very with with the again. It's, it's how the criticism is done as well. If it's done in a constructive and a helpful way, it's easier. But when it's someone who's just oh shit in a dismissive or an aggressive way, um, so I'm not terribly confrontational. And I'm not one to go. No, you are wrong, and I am right. Mm. Blah blah blah. I think yes, I'm, I'm not particularly good at taking criticism with stuff. I, I absorb it and you know, I uh, usually act upon it, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm bad at taking things a bit too personally. Right. Because when the thing is, when you're doing anything creative, you're doing it from the heart generally. Mm. And I know some people do it as a, some people have different processes and they do it by numbers and all this sort of stuff. When I'm doing a, a show or I'm making a bit of pre-recorded stuff or I'm making some music, you know, it's all it's all straight from the heart, and it's you're kind of laying yourself bare as such, which makes it trickier mm. to th- put yourself in such a a big and subjective situation. Really, mm. and you picked up the bass at ten, mm. and you've played in a lot of bands and a lot of yes. done a lot of music performances yourself. Yeah. Would you prefer to be on stage? Oh God, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, I think it's the thing. It's two things in the one sentence, which is a. Uh, Kind of poor grammar, really, but um, it's uh, the playing music is much more freeing, and it makes me feel more of a connect. It makes me feel more complete when I'm playing music that I love with with good people and a responsive audience. That's the best feeling. It's 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 transcendental. Mm. It. Uh, um, a friend of mine once said to me that because I think I was at, I was at. A, was that a gig somewhere or something? And I was standing awkwardly in the corner and kind of, you know, shuffling around in the corner of pubs because I'm, you know, I'm not a drinker, so I always feel like an, an imposter. And I was looking a bit, feeling a bit awkward and stuff. And then 
he was with Seb, bless his constock, so he often got me to play a song. And then I was just gregarious, blah, 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 playing stuff. Mm. Blah, blah, blah. And I went back to being this ridiculous, shy, you know, sticking the cut into the corner of the room kind mm. of a person. Like, yeah, you're right. That is ridiculous. I don't understand it at all. It's, it's, so I think, you know, when I'm playing music, you know, it takes me to this other level where I forget how awkward and clumsy I am and, you know, it's sort of, I just sort of, yeah, it's a cheesy cliche, but it feels like when I'm playing music and things are going well, I feel like it's a conduit, mm. something, some higher energy is channeling something through and it's nice. And again, that, it's a little bit of a cliche, but that is definitely how I feel when I'm writing, a, when I've written pieces of music and it turns out amazingly and it's come out in like 10 minutes mm. and it's effortless. And so there's a few pieces I've written and that's happened and it's like, it's like oh, that's a thing. Well, that's a thing, yeah. Do this and this. Oh, I'll write some words. And then within a quarter of an hour, you have this finished piece of music. You go, bloody hell, where did that come from? Sure. And it takes you by surprise and it's just, oh, it's... You know, I don't know if there are narcotics that give you that kind of feeling, but it's amazing. It's the most beautiful thing of this sort of clarity. And it's like, a, again, like a conduit for some other energy that just sort of comes through you. Mm. And you, you were saying you you do a job that you love, mm. but you would prefer to be on the stage. Mm. So... I mean, it's it's like, it. I guess it's like um, being a golf caddy in so much as... You're walking on the course, you're handing the golf, what do you call them, golfers, golfists, golfers, I guess. Um, I can tell I'm not much of a bowler. Um, you're handing somebody else, you're acting as a facilitator. <clears throat> and a lot of the time in, when I'm doing kind of artier shows where I've got a bit more latitude, I'm kind of, um, again, this sounds really pretentious, but I'm kind of translating the, the music into a, a visual way. Mm. So at its, at its core, what I do on the day job is basically the people that are sitting with the really crummy seats at the back, I make them feel like they're at the front. So, you know, when the singer's singing, you're showing his face, or if he has a certain look, you'll amplify that with this guitar break, you sort of go to the guitar or drums or key fill or... Sure. And, you know, there's a particular... You're showing them where to look. Yes, yeah, so especially if you're sitting in the room, you go, you're looking at a band like that. That's kind of, at, the, at its root, that's my my role mm. and so asking the cameraman to get certain things and stuff and then I usually augment it with some sort of effect or something to so it makes the whole show seamless mm. and so I'm at, it's it's a very creative thing I do which I, and I love it but it's um, and it's it's kind of facilitatory it's always it's helping somebody else be better which is lovely and it's I mean I wouldn't fancy you know I've been around I've been around fame and the fame machine for, for enough years to know that I don't think it would sit with me very well. I was going to say, would you like to be famous? Yeah, I mean, you always, you know, you have everybody has the fantasies of, you know, being, you know, having your own TV special or mm. you know, doing a big sold out tour and all this sort of stuff. And I still do, even though I know that at my age, I'm never going to be a breakthrough rock star because, you know, the, the rock thing is, uh, and the, the pop thing, the popular music thing is, uh, is a young pretty person's game 
and that ship sailed for me. I, I, actually, I don't think I ever got. I don't think that ship ever came near me, if I'm honest. But it's um, it is a you know performing and writing music is is a thing that brings me amazing joy. But that's probably because I don't do it for for a living. Mm. I went through a quite a hefty phase of because I say I've been writing music since I was about twelve years old. And all that I was writing poetry and basically rhyming and stuff without music since I was about sort of six or seven. Um, and I went through a heavy phase about sort of 20, 25 years ago of just going, oh man, why can't, I, why the hell can't I do this? And having this sort of big thing holding me back, of why can't I be famous? This is ridiculous. Mm. Work. That's the, you know. And then there's a few things. I've got some very, very dear friends, some civilian friends, like John Whitehouse, who's as a, had at the time span the funky low lives who do beautiful music. And he was kind of, you know, they were signed and they were dealing in, you know, a level of business. And then my dear friend Seb, who was playing in this band Monkster at the time, mm. and they were working their little socks off. They were a cracking band. You know, I went to see them a lot, playing a lot, and toured them, and, you know, I was their driver and whatnot. And they were working really hard and just, they had, they had the songs, they had the performance, but they just, there's something of bands that don't quite make it. Um, it doesn't diminish any of their art by any means. And I read a book um, called Powder. I can't remember who the chap was that wrote it. But it was about, um, it was just a story of a band that happened to make it big and got caught up in the fame machine and got spat out the wrong way yeah. of it. And, and after reading that, I was like, actually, maybe just writing music for my own edification, maybe that's it. Because... As with uh, <laughs> as with anything that you study, nothing will kill a passion more than having to do it. Mm-hmm. If you know what I mean, it's like um, when I was doing my degree, I got so bored of photography because it uh, it became a chore. It became a responsibility rather than being something to do f- for joy. And so it sort of changed my relationship with it. And I think if, I, if I'd had to, if I'd studied music, it might have done the same thing. I mean, the, the, the college course was a bit unusual in that uh, uh, a lot of the teachers uh, would often not turn up. <laughs> and I ended up teaching a lot of the students how to do uh, uh, colour printing and enlarging and, uh, and photo editing and stuff. So I worked in the photo lab and obviously I did work at the magazine, mm. a guitarist and all that prior to going to uni. So I knew quite a lot about photo printing and color balance and all this sort of stuff. Mm. So I think I kind of uh, those elements and the sort of the, the chore of having to teach people as well as being a student kind of put me off photography for a bit. Though you know I still enjoyed things, which is why when I discovered video at concerts, I used to take photographs at concerts loads when I was when I was younger, and it cost me an absolute fortune because as you know having film, you know, film photography used to do. Mm. I mean, it makes me feel like the dinosaurs and I talk to my nieces these days. Yeah, so I'd take these things and it basically cost me a week's pocket money for a roll of film. And it cost me a week's pocket money, or two weeks' pocket money to get them developed. So, yeah. mm. um, uh, and so when video came along, I was, I was doing this tour in a sort of like assistant stage manager capacity for one of the, uh, one of Ireland's premier boy bands at the time, Boyzone. And we did this theatre, see the theatre run and help build the set and help get 
various bands on the stage and stuff. And then they came back about uh, six weeks later and then they had like, a pair of video screens on the side. And um, the people I met there, um, you know, one of them was uh, a chap called Chris Hilson, who now is like Aerosmith and Bruce Springsteen's personal video director. The one Gary, who is, he is very high profile in, in television and does Jimmy Jibs for um, tennis and all international tennis and stuff. And the other one, Matt Askin, was a TV director who, um, you know, is phenomenally well respected. And I actually gave him the job uh, directing U2. So I got to do U2 and I, I couldn't do it because I'd booked something else. Sure, yeah. Which is still, I still kick myself about that. Mm. I had the little devil on the shoulder going, do it, it's the biggest thing in the room. And then the little angel's going, no, you've agreed to do mm. this other thing. But again, and he's a lovely chap. So I've, I ended up getting in with this unbelievably talented little trio of people who saw that I was, in, you know, I was into photography and so I was doing cameras. And it's like, this is great. It's like doing photography, but more of it. And it doesn't cost me a fortune. This is brilliant. <laughs> so, uh, yes, yeah, so that's kind of how... Progression is, and I've, I've gone off, off piece a little bit. I do apologize. No, no, it's, but, it's, um, it's marvelous. And that was the progression. And just lo not long after that, I went right. This is, I think, there's a future in this video lark. I think it's, you know, there's there's creativity, and there's um, a technical aspect which I find fascinating. I'm always, you know, interested with new technologies. Hmm. Less so these days. I feel like I'm becoming more of a luddite these days. I think I went very, very far with learning how all the equipment works on a, like, you know, a component level. And I think more as I've been going to a more creative part of thing, uh, path is becoming more like a means to an end. Mm. So I feel very, I look back at the things I used to do and go, God, you used to be really clever. And now you're just kind of stupid. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's just different things. You know, when I was doing technical stuff, I needed to know all the technical things. And the technical things are still with me, but uh, it's not quite as... Uh, as the front of my mind, as you know, these days I've got to come up with more artistic, stupid ideas. In, in but more fulfilling. Oh yeah, I mean I love it, and it's it's um, it has been a wonderful. You know, I mean I'm a very lucky chap. I mean I've and uh, as I say, as a, as a shy kid from a, a seaside town in the east coast, I often think when I'm you know at some massive big meeting with you know people who've been doing shows for the last 50 years that are the most amazing shows I've ever seen. Like just sitting, I remember being on a, <laughs> I remember being on a private jet, uh, talking to our production manager who did the U2, um, Zoo TV tour. And he'd been working with them for years. And just sitting there going, I cannot believe that this bloke who I've watched his work is talking to me. And he knows who I am. And he's actually continuing to talk to me. This is so crazy. And, um, it's learning from these people and learning how they deal with you know, the weirdness of you know, wearing the mask in this you know, very strange little world. <laughs> Sorry, I'm waffling. I do apologise. No, no, it's absolutely fascinating. What advice would you give somebody 10 years younger than you? Oh, I mean, the key thing is to be genuine. I've always... Straight up, I don't say strive. Strive sounds like it's a battle, and I'm always thinking, "Oh, shall I be an arsehole or shall I fake stuff?" You have to wear the mask, which gives you certain 
different attributes and makes you feel more powerful necessarily or changes you a little bit. But at your core, you've got to, you know, as a very dear friend of mine once said, if you've got, if you try and be yourself, because you can't be anybody else very convincingly. You know, I could try and be the um, kind of the super confident, you know, la-di-da video director who's, um, but it's not who I am. It's just, I'm just some bloke that happens to do stuff which people seem to like. And that's the best, that's all I can achieve. And then if that all goes crumbling down, you've still got yourself at the end of it. Mm. And I think the the worst thing anyone can do, you know, my, my biggest regrets are the times I've ever been unkind or said anything um, you know, sometimes when, you know, in the day job of doing this high profile stuff, you have to reprimand people and stuff. And I don't like doing that because, you know, I like, you know, floating about in my own little buzzy, fuzzy little world. But when I've said something and then I think it's, un and then I, th I think or I find out later that it was, it was unfair. Ah, I hate that. I hate it's being unfair to people. Mm. That that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. Just so, yeah. Just keeping keeping genuine. And there's a lot of people that do do things in the entertainment industry because they think that that's how people behave. But you know, at the end of the day, you've got to you've got to live with yourself. And if the entertainment industry, for whatever reason, were to stop one day for, I don't know, an unspecified period of time. <laughs> you know, you can't be that guy. I've, I've worked with a few people who have, you know, they've gone and, you know, they've pissed people off and they've been rude to people. And obviously, often with the aid of uh, narcotics, which were a terrible thing for the touring industry, really, because it turns nice people into not nice people, generally. Um, and when they, they get off the road, all of a sudden... With just some some guy drinking tea in his pants. Yes, yeah, for somebody ten years younger, just be genuine and be be who you are. There's actually um, the when I used to go to the guitar shop in St Albans, there's a wonderful chap there called Peter Gent, who you know, fixed guitars. And I'd often just go in there just to sort of for the social and say hello, obviously have a look around, and buy too many guitars, as is my penchant. Um, and one day, you know, we were talking about stuff and life in general, which is fascinating. And he said to me that, um, I said, oh, how old are you? I think he was about 50 at the time. So I was 34 at the time. I said, the thing is, once you get past 40, you know, wealth, you know, it's a cliche of life begins at 40. At 40, you throw away the instruction book and you just get on and live your life. Mm. And I thought... And I think about that phrase every single day because it is absolutely it's absolutely on the money. So once I got past forty, it's like, well, I made it this far and I've still got my fingers and I've still got, you know, my faculties and I've still got people that will talk to me by choice mm. rather than because they talk to me because, you know, interaction and stuff rather than because I have something to give them or because I'll give them work or because any other number of contrived reasons people might talk to people. So I think, well, I think I'm doing all right then. And so once you get past the 40 thing, you kind of go, well, I don't really need to keep seek everyone's approval. You know, I've, I've kind of got this far and 
Yeah, yeah. And it's, it, it was the most amazing epiphany. I remember as I was getting toward for it, just thinking about his words. I'm thinking, no, oh, yeah, you're actually pretty on the money. You know, you're less worried about what people think about you, which is why you see, you know, old blokes sitting in deck chairs with the tops off and, you know, and the, uh, the hello there's downstairs occasionally peeping out of the shorts. <laughs> They're just sort of sitting there going, I'm, I'm 78. So what? And, you know, I mean, there's a lot, when you're younger, I've talked to a friend whose um, teenage uh, relatives are going through a period of like, you know, of being bulimic because of the, which is really sad. And it gave me a bit of a, gave me a bit of a shake yesterday when they told me. And it's just the fact that, you know, I think all, you know, old youth culture is based around beauty and it's, you know, I mean, in the seventies, you'd be hard, you know, with the everyone that was on top of the pops, the likes of it, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and and stuff. You'd be hard pushed to think that beauty was the key thing, but more, it's becoming more and more so of a beauty as a commodity. That you know, the the Instagram influencers are all in Dubai having a wonderful time with their perfectly toned bodies and their beauty and this millionaire lifestyle. I think you know, for young people these days, it's, it must be a lot harder to be a, a normal person because. Mm there's this kind of, you know, overwhelming deluge of just folks that are, uh, you know, this expectation of being perfect and living the perfect life. And there's no such thing as the perfect life. And it's, it goes back to the tapestry thing. So you see all these influencers that are hanging around a, part, around a, a, a rooftop infinity pool in Dubai with the most beautiful physiques, you know, hair all done up, looking gorgeous. It's like, you think... I wonder what they're like as actual people. Mm. You know, I know they're living living their best lives, to use the modern vernacular, but you think, and it, it presents this sort of idealised view of, look at me, I'm so perfect. Aren't you perfect? What, you're living in you know, a village in the middle of nowhere? <laughs> oh, dear me. So the the expectations of, uh, of young folks these days is, is just, and the pressure, I'd imagine, is just horrible mm. because it's... Um, it's presenting this fake life where well, the fake or artificial life where um, it's all based around the appearance and because of the sort of the, the speed of information coming in of, you know, the TikTok generation, which is an app that I'm guilty of using myself where it's like, uh, yeah, no, uh, uh, of just sort of swiping past things. Oh, is it interesting me in the first second and a half? no, no, move on, move mm. on. You know, we're living in a very transient culture of there's so much information. It's it's coming at you so fast and from every angle that um, the initial impression of being beautiful, that means so much. And a lot of people aren't beautiful, generally, or the not that model of beauty. They may have a different, you know, they may have... Uh, be, don't uh, fit the bill. They don't fit the bill. They don't fit the the very very narrow criteria. You know, with the, yeah. you know, if you're a boy, you've got to be a certain height. You've got to be a certain body mass index. You've got to have, you know, a certain amount of abs. Often blonde hair, and it's all very. The bandwidth is very narrow for what is accepted as beauty these days. Mm. Whereas there are a lot of people that. Uh, are beautiful people, but not necessarily photogenic. Mm. There's, 
you know, people have, you know, a single person is so many, it's a whole, you know, just in some world of adventures of different things, mm. of different attributes of, you know, how they make somebody feel. So like my favorite people, oh, this, is, this may sound really rude. A lot of my favorite people, you know, while they're beautiful people, they're not necessarily Instagram beautiful. Mm. Some of them are, but most of the point of makes you want to be around them is how they make you feel mm. and the energy they give off and how they greet you. And that's what, uh, you know, that's what I think makes it important for people is the sort of the way, uh, how they are as a whole, rather than just how pretty they are. And because of the way that information's coming at us so fast and the fact we're getting so much less human interaction because even just stuff like, um, I mean, heavens above the, uh, with the pandemic when you can't have human interaction and, you know, you're having to, you can't see people's mouths, and, mm. which is a massive thing for the senses to see how people's mouths are moving and what signals it's giving face. us. See the whole face. So everyone's getting used to this and the elbows and mm. some, I'm quite a, a tactile huggy kind of a person. Hopefully not to the point of indecency, but you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, tactile person I like hugging people and and not being able to do that for over a year has been really weird mm. and yeah and it's I think the fact that you know, we're having you know home deliveries you know sort of packages arriving on the doorstep somebody with a mask on waving at you okay bye mm. and we're, we're, we're losing this human interaction thing not necessarily deliberately but by means of logistics really and you know, self-checkouts in supermarkets where you don't have the, the sort of the to and fro of human interaction. So I think we're becoming a lot more insular and this kind of, so getting people, finding out who people are is a lot more difficult these days. Mm. I sound like a really old bloke, don't I? I sound like, he's not like he was when I was younger. But it, it's not, again, it's not deriding it. It's, it's just more observing it and, and hoping I don't sound like an old bloke shouting at a bus stop rather than being an old bloke um, sitting in a very nice studio. Going back to your work, hmm. do you think people envy you? Possibly. Uh, I don't tend to ask, if I'm honest. I think, again, it's the front of the tapestry, isn't it? Um, from the front of the tapestry, it's I travel the real world with rock stars and do stuff and show up at shows and and the back of the tapestry is it's, um, well, you miss your family, you miss home, and you miss um, you miss knowing how to speak the language, and having to convert how much everything costs into actually how much it costs in pounds, and and yeah, missing the family, missing the things that you have around the house, missing the friends that you have. I mean, that's why well, my my um, music career hasn't gone any further because I'm never at home. <clears throat> Not often enough, not regularly enough at home to be able to, you know, get my band going live and, or keep sort of, you know, playing with bands in the area. So it's, and that's the back of the tapestry, it's all other things. But I think a lot of people might be envious, I don't know. Um, I think they find it interesting and they sort of think, they sort of, again, they see the front of the tapestry of this sort of uh, jet set lifestyle. Mm. But every, every situation has its, as it's twos and it's as pros and it's cons, the front and the back of the tapestry. There's um, 
I think in our industry, there's a lot of people that have got jobs at uh, you know, driving for Waitrose and working in Tesco. They're probably aren't going to go back to the touring industry again because they go, well, it doesn't pay as much, but it's regular. Mm. And you're not always stressing about when the next job's coming in. Mm. And you see your family and you have a routine. So it's um, it's different sides of the same coin, really. I think some people might be envious of it. But, uh, you know, there's all the other sides of every situation that come with it. And obviously it's a very, very competitive situation to be in. Um, because when you do kind of a cool job, which makes me... Sounds a little bit vulgar, but in a job that is cool, mm. especially video directing, there's only one person per tour. And so there's a, it's quite a competitive field. And there's a lot of people that are much better salesmen than me, mm. terrible salesmen. And fortunately, people that know stuff seem to think I'm all right at it. Mm. And that's, uh, that's, that's a real blessing, is that? Because if, if it was down to me to go, I am the best, give me all the work, I would not be doing it because I don't like pushing myself forward. And fortunately some other people do, which is lovely. And talking about being the best, in what areas of your life are you happy to be good enough? Hmm. I'd say most in, uh, I mean, I'm very, I've, I suppose I'm kind of competitive with, um, maybe giving people value for money if you know what I mean. So when I'm working on a show, I'll make sure I know, like um, when I'm learning songs that I have to to film or design things for, I'll learn the songs inside out and I'll learn how to play the, the, the instruments and stuff and I'll learn how, the every nuance of it. And so I'd say I'm competitive in that sense, in the sense of, if somebody's asking me to do something, I'll put my heart into it. Um... But uh, I see a lot of the times being the best, it comes at the it carries a risk of alienating other people and sort of you know kicking people aside, all this sort of stuff. Mm. So yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, good enough uh, is a big statement. I mean, I like you know, part of me is quite competitive. I don't like to be. I always worry about being caught out for being stupid. And so that, that's, the, that's a big part of me. That's why I always work mm. really hard on certain things. Or anything that anyone's asking ask me to do, I'll always try and work really hard on it just to, you know, not fall into the trap of uh, somebody going, hmm, this is a pile of crap. Mm. Oh, sorry. I wasn't really bothered that day. Mm. So I think that that's kind of comes to, down to uh, the low self-esteem thing of just trying to, when someone asks you to do something, having to kind of prove yourself and go a little above and beyond. Yes, I mean, I think it's the, the low self-esteem thing, that's the thing that drives drives you to do better because you're always thinking everything you do, you go, ah, that's not good enough. Right, okay, so it's not good enough, right. What will be better? What will make people go, wow? What will be the surprise? What will be the, what will be the extra 10% of juice that will make this, go, make this really work? Mm. So I think there's there's always that proving to yourself and others type thing. Which probably sounds a bit a bit of a cliche, but what work were you doing the last time you forgot time altogether? Oh God, that's that's so common. That really is. Um, 
it's usually when I'm uh, programming something uh, or designing something uh, or making music or editing um, a piece of video. And again, one of the things that I most love about doing creative stuff is the bubble you get into. You get into this weird alpha state, which makes me unbelievably happy. Um, uh, so when you're doing something like playing music on a stage in front of people that are happy, they're going yay, everyone around you is playing amazingly and it's all great. You get into this really wonderful sort of warm bubble state where everything's firing and you feel amazing. And I've done a few shows like that, like with the Cigarros was one of those where I didn't have to talk to anybody because I was operating all the remote control cameras myself. I had like 10 cameras and I, had, I was operating all of the all of the media servers and the content off a MIDI keyboard doing all sorts of stuff. So I didn't have to talk to anybody for the show because normally doing live camera directing, it's, it's like doing a bad hospital radio. You have to talk to people, keep people on side and get them to do things, get certain things and sort of, you know, critique how they're framing. They go left a bit, left a bit, in a bit, in a bit, focus up, okay. But um, when you're in those situations where you're not, having to con- you know, you're not having to sort of put on the performance of keeping people wanting to be happy and doing stuff, mm. when it's just yourself, you get into this sort of wonderful fuzzy world where all the synapses are firing and you're doing yeah, editing or you're making recording and you go, Shit, it's three in the morning. Oh man, oh dear. Right, uh, just another half an hour, and then that's it. But that is the most beautiful. That's the one of my favorite favorite things is mm. doing something creative, and then going shit. It's three in the morning. There's this sort of stark realization that you, you know, you're probably going to be tired the following day. But the fact that you haven't noticed, it's brilliant. Mm. <laughs> Do you feel you live an ordinary? Or an extraordinary life? Well, I'll be honest, this is my only frame of reference. Um, everyone's life is different. And um, yeah, I'd say that everyone has a, you know, their own individual story. And this is a story that I seem to have at the moment. Um, and it's something I'm very lucky for because, again, doing something that I love, I love music. I love doing creative stuff. I love traveling. So I'm very lucky for that. And I'm thanking my lucky stars every day. And, um, but I think it's probably, it's not the homogenized novel because it involves these, um, these extraordinary things of traveling around, going to concert, you know, being at concerts and stuff and looking at, world from a different point of view so it's not I'm not saying a nine to five job is normal because everything has its own individual dynamics but yeah saying it's extraordinary does make it sound a bit more show busy than it probably is but it's not the ordinary it's not the sort of the the, the pre-planned life that you imagine when you're when you're a kid you sort of imagine having a, a family and you know, a regular job where you can do stuff and have evenings off and stuff like that. So yes, I'd say it's it's probably extraordinary, but not in um 
Hopefully not in a, a conceited way, if you know what I mean. John Shrimpton, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Amazing. If you enjoyed this exploration into John's unlived life, make sure to give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the YouTube channel for a new episode every Wednesday. If you're listening via the podcast, please do give the show a review. I hope you enjoyed listening. Thank you.